What can we learn about ourselves by reading the stories of past admirals and seafarers in this era of social media? We talk leadership with Admiral James Stavridis while discussing his new book, Sailing True North, Ten Admirals and the Voyage of Character. I think that it is all the more important that leaders carve out time away from that glare of transparency. They find time to simply read and write and think about what matters, what are their values, what they stand for. The four-star admiral also shares why the United States needs to remain a leader on the global stage and the surprising number of books and fountain pens he's collected over the years. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Institute. What happens when you cross the 43rd president, late-night sketch comedy, and compelling conversation? The Strategist, a podcast born from the word strategery, which was coined by SNL and embraced by the George W. Bush administration. We highlight the American spirit of leadership and compassion through thought-provoking conversations. And we're reminded that the most effective leaders are the ones who laugh. Well, we're honored to have our guest today, U.S. Navy Admiral James Tavridis. He's the former Supreme Allied Commander, obviously U.S. Navy Admiral, is currently Operating Executive at the Carlyle Group. Admiral Stavridis, thank you so much for being with us. What a pleasure to be in Texas with you. And our co-host today is once again, the Colonel Matt Amadon, who's our Director of the Military Service Initiative here at the Bush Center. Matt, thanks for doing this again. Andrew, thanks for being here. And uh, Admiral, thank you for bringing the cool weather to Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was 100 degrees pretty much till you got here. And now it's beautiful. Exactly. And uh, last night I was greeted with the fireworks of the biggest lightning storms I've seen, which delayed my flight for almost five hours. Oh, no. So never let it be said that I didn't fight my way through thunder and lightning to get to the Bush Center. <laughs> well, we, we can't thank you enough yet. We know you're busy and we, we're thrilled to have you here. Um, so one of the, we wanted to start with uh, something a little fun. We heard that you are a, a lover of fountain pens and old maps. Is that, is that true? It is. And uh, I think it's interesting to uh, speculate on why those two interests emerge. That was going to be the next question. Okay, fine. So uh, one is I love to write. I've, I've written now nine books. My new book, Sailing True North, comes out next week. And I am also uh, someone who loves reading and anything that touches uh, writers is is important to me. So yeah, I have 400 fountain pens, believe it or not. Oh wow. Wow. Yeah, it's uh it's a gentle madness <laughs> and uh, some of them are um a little on the pricey side, but uh some of them I find in flea markets, antiquarian stores. I can restore pens. It's also a nice kind of hobby. And when I pick up a fountain pen and I think that it's from the 1920s or 1930s, and I think of all the writers who have held that pen and what they wrote, and I kind of ruminate on all that. So, yes, I love fountain pens. I think maps are probably more obvious um, because of spending so much of my life at sea. Yeah. And if if you really look at a map of the world, of course, 70% of it is water, and I spent nine and a half years on the deep ocean, if you added it all up day for day, out of sight of land. So for me, maps and that, to quote Tennyson, that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and forever when you move has always intrigued me. So I have maps. The earliest one I have in my collection is from the 
uh, very early 1500s. It's a map of Marco Polo's travels. Oh, wow. And um, I also have uh, maps and charts for your listeners. The difference between a map and a chart is a map is land. A chart is the sea. I have both maps and charts. And I have many of the charts that I use to navigate on over my years at sea from the Persian Gulf, from the Mediterranean, from the Caribbean, um, with the pencil lines sketched on them. And I also have a lot of maps from Afghanistan, from my time as the Supreme Allied Commander in NATO. Every time I would go there, the staff would prepare a very detailed map of where we were going, and I would mark that up as we went around. I have a map of the uh, of Libya from the Libyan campaign in 2011, showing many of the strikes we conducted. So it's an interesting collection, my pens and my maps. I'll conclude, however, by saying that your research missed the thing I collect the most. Oh, man. And it's books. I have 5,000 books, which much to my beautiful wife, Laura's utter dismay. <laughs> Who is sitting a, here with us today. Yeah. Indeed, in a military family where you move every two to three years, so you are unpacking and packing and boxing and shelving 5,000 5, books. I got some work to do there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sir, I'd love to hear um, your thoughts on when you say maps and charts and you, you were um, provided maps of Afghanistan and, and things like that. But sometimes the, the difference between what a map in front of you displays and the actual ground truth, an example being, I think in, in Jordan, they call the, the northeastern portion of that border Winston's Hiccup when he was drawing the border. So your observations over time of how maps can be representative of ground truth or otherwise, specifically in Afghanistan as well. Yeah, I think generally it is otherwise. A map is so sterile in the end. It can't convey to you events on the ground. And I'll give you a very practical example. These days I do a lot of talks where I uh, speak about a variety of international subjects. And one I talk about is Ukraine. And I'll start by showing a map of Ukraine. And, you know, it's a kind of an interesting country. It's uh, on the Black Sea, of course, and there's this dangling chunk of it hangs down like a like a pouch of rice uh, that is Crimea. And you can look at that and think, meh, okay, it's a little peninsula that juts into the Black Sea. You cannot imagine uh, the wars over two millennia, the fighting over Crimea, the negotiation of the treaty there. You mentioned Winston Churchill a moment ago, the end of the Second World War effectively conducted there. The Tsar's palace, it's, it can't convey anything. So what I will do for an audience is I'll show a map of Ukraine and Crimea, and I'll say, here's Ukraine. It was invaded by Russia. Uh, Crimea was annexed by Russia. And I'll say, but let me show you what Ukraine looks like today. Click. And the next slide is a quad of combat. It's destroyed buildings. It's artillery pieces. It's, it's four brutal photographs. And I'll say to the audience, that's what Crimea looks like. That's what Ukraine looks like. It's a war. 15,000 people have died there. So um, to your point, leaders, statesmen, diplomats, military officers must refrain from allowing the sterility of a map and the simple act of gliding your pencil across it to think that you've solved a problem because you have not. Thank you. So, Admiral, I want to start by talking about your book, which um, 
Time Magazine has recently named a must-read for October. Uh, Sailing True North, Ten Admirals and the Voyage of Character. I mean, when I, when I sat down to read it, I wasn't expecting to have a book that I was going to personally be able to take the lessons from and apply them to my career. I thought I'd be learning about learning some history and learning about the the voyage of these seafarers. And I said, I was like, this is actually something that I can apply to in my daily life. Did you know that was going to be the end result when you sat down to write the book? I certainly hoped it would. And the the guidepost in my mind was an ancient book, Plutarch's Lives, which is written uh, by a Roman about leading figures in Roman society. And he hoped that by doing that, he would illuminate lessons of character, uh, which readers could apply to their own lives. Um, I, I think at a minimum level of entry, it is a book of history. You meet these 10 interesting historical admirals going back 2,000 years. Each one is a chapter. But as you know, having having read the book, the power of it is seeing how they confronted the inner challenges. You know, we are awash in books of leadership. We are. Leadership is the influence we exert over others. Character is how we lead ourselves. It's that inner voyage, which I would argue is vastly more difficult than the simple act of motivating groups of people. Uh, and so the idea of the book is to have some case studies that readers can say, you know, I faced that kind of a challenge. And how did that seafaring admiral respond to it? And then draw some lessons. And they're both good and bad lessons in the book. Yeah, not not all of these are, are heroes necessarily. Correct. Indeed. Um, to, to go immediately to the alpha and omega of heroism and, and problematic, um, I would say the hero of the piece is Admiral Chester Nimitz, who leads the, I should say, fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz. He was one of a handful of only uh, eight five-star officers in the Second World War. And Chester Nimitz led the U.S. fleet through the Second World War. And what I admire most about him was that he he comes a couple of days after Pearl Harbor. The This glittering American fleet is literally smoking in the harbor in front of him. His battleships, the heart of that strike force, is destroyed. And as he smells that cordite and literally sees bodies being taken out of Pearl Harbor, he takes command, not on the deck of a a beautiful battleship, there isn't one, not on the deck of a carrier, they've been sortied to try and keep them safe at sea, he takes command on the deck of a submarine, of a diesel submarine, and yet he was so enormously resilient, that's the thing to admire about Chester Nimitz, And, and sort of coupled with that resilience is his calmness. I think almost anybody in that situation, I know I would have been just despairing. And I would have therefore been, I think, full of uh, of internal pent up anger and difficulty. And it's so hard to control yourself in that situation, because the job of an officer, the job of anybody at that moment is to bring order out of chaos. And he did that without raising his voice, leading extremely difficult uh, subordinates like Douglas MacArthur, an enormous ego, uh, Bull Halsey, a publicity machine, unmatched, um, a legend in his own mind. Um, 
he did, he melded teams together. He was calm. He was steady. He was resilient. That's the kind of admiral you want to have. And I think he also, you also mentioned, I believe optimism came up a lot for Nimitz in your book. It does. He was, uh, he was from Texas. He was from Fredericksburg, Texas for the Texans who are listening, go see his museum and came out of German American stock here. And in, in the midst of all that resilience was a deep strain of American optimism that drove through him. So I'd put him at the top of the list at the dark end is, uh, Sir Francis Drake, who is this privateer, pirate. Uh, everywhere I went in the Caribbean when I was commander of U.S. Southern Command, the individual nations, all of them, would lead me to the museum and show me the stories of the raids of the pirate Drake. And so he is included in the book uh, to show decisiveness and combat ability and determination. Those are good qualities, but in his case, they were harnessed in ways that were on the very dark side of the equation. So I think each of these admirals has a backstory, and there are lessons we can draw from each of them. Sir, I appreciate you, you commentary on the, I think, the endless civility of Chester Nimitz, which <laughs> is so applicable. Um, but the voyage of character uh, requires um, sort of time alone to reflect, I think. And you mentioned in your book the difficulty of doing that in today's world. How difficult is it for senior leaders to self-reflect on their character journey and perhaps um, be exemplars of that endless civility when they're always under the uh, the lens of social media and constant attention. Yeah, I think for any uh, leader in today's world, um, two things have changed radically over the last, say, three decades. One is transparency, which is now complete. Um, everything we do in the end, is on display. You cannot hide anything. And the second thing is acceleration. It's the speed at which events occur. And when you combine those two things, it's a, a lethal witch's brew that uh, can poison any leader's attempt to face the public. And so uh, I think that it is all the more important that leaders carve out time away from that glare of transparency. They find time to simply read and write and think about what matters, what are their values, what they stand for. And doing that, I'll close by saying, can be... Um, can be a, a quiet hour and a half on an airplane when you are utterly by yourself and you take out your Kindle and instead of watching, um, you know, an arguably extremely entertaining movie, but you turn off crazy rich Asians and, <laughs> and you get out, you get out a terrific book and you read it. Um, my wife, Laura, right now is reading a, a biography of Richard Holbrook, an extraordinary, difficult, complex American diplomat whose career spans Vietnam, the Balkans, and the Dayton Accords, and Afghanistan. And there's a kind of a loose, grungy metaphor for America's role in the world that runs through Holbrook's life, through those three scenarios, those three conflicts. Finding time to spend an hour and a half with a Richard Holbrook 
um, can make you much richer, not because he was perfect, because he was far from perfect. He was someone who had affairs. He lost his temper. He was utterly, ruthlessly, over-the-top ambitious. But you learn both good and bad things about yourself reading that book. And uh, the book is called Our Man, Our Man, Richard Holbrook, and it's by George Packer. Can character be taught or modeled or mentored along the way? It can. Um, and I think I would argue it almost entirely is. I I find it hard to believe that as we emerge from the womb, um, humans are either hugely good Chester Nimitzes or destined for villainy like a Sir Francis Drake. I think... Th- our character is molded. In fact, if you if you open Sailing True North, I think it's true for all of us. The dedication of this book is to Shirley and George Stavridis, my mother and father, who shaped my character long before I ever put to sea. So I think our character begins with what we learn from our parents. And um, that's a pretty powerful foundation. But then as we go along, we encounter others, both in person. And this gets back to the value of reading. Um, you'll never have a chance, none of us will ever have a chance to meet Abraham Lincoln. Yet you can read Doris Kearns Goodwin's magisterial portrait of his ability to bring disparate characters together and you can learn from a Lincoln. Lincoln can shape your character if you find three hours on a quiet airplane ride to dive into a marvelous book like that. And by the way, I wouldn't understate in particular autobiography and memoir in this regard. So many military officers, I think, military members would agree with me that the best military memoir is that of Ulysses S. Grant, which uh, tells his story in brutally honest terms, his his life coming from a hard scrabble farm, somehow getting into West Point, just about flunking out, the Mexican-American War, the Civil War, his challenges with alcohol. It's all there. And, and to pull that book out and read it and think about it is spending time with you know, a a powerful, successful two-term American president, but a self-acknowledged flawed human being. Memoir, I think, is, is a wonderful way to help shape your own character. And then lastly, um, the events you go through shape your character. So some people I find just kind of glide through life. It's, it's all pretty easy for them. Um, not many, but some others have huge challenges they face, um, medically, legal challenges, uh, disadvantages of socioeconomics, and and yet manage to overcome those. So, so you have this foundation from your family, you learn and grow, and you're educated by your teachers who matter a lot, you self-educate with reading, and then you encounter the world. And I think your character is the sum of those things. It caused me a lot of self-reflection was one of the lines of that strategy is, is difficult, but and so you often prefer the busyness of the moment. And if, if there's anything in this world that describes me, it's that. It's you get caught up in the moment and 
th- those leadership lessons are, are, I think, really valuable in the book and, and are, I would say, I was, it, to me, it was unexpected to learn that about myself from admirals. And it, it's, I think, a, a tribute to you that you were able to pull that out. Well, thanks. I, I, I do think you put your finger on a real challenge of modern life, which is input overwhelms us. There is so much information flowing at us. There are so many opportunities. We can dispense our time in so many different marvelous ways that it's it's very easy to be caught up, if you will, in the crisis management of your life, to be solving the tactical at the expense of stepping back and saying, what do I really want to do here? And um, the whole book, the essence of the book is is a call for people to do more of the latter and less of the former. Sit down and write. Yeah, the former will, in the end, almost always take care of itself. The tactical works itself out. Um, it's the strategic that, that then informs and solves so many of those tactical problems. On a totally different front, we really want to hear your perspective on a current international topic. At the Bush Institute, we're firm believers that women are the critical ingredient to peace and prosperity in the Middle East. We recently published a paper discussing the gains women have made in Afghanistan since the fall of the Taliban, thanks to the U.S. involvement there. But in your view, should the American engagement in Afghanistan be a continued priority? It absolutely should, and it must. And I I want to, speaking of strategic, I want to kind of start from the strategic before we dive to Afghanistan in this regard. If you're a historian 400 years from now, and you are writing a history of the 21st century, you are probably not going to devote a lot uh, to Afghanistan. You probably are going to devote a fair amount to China and the rise of China. That'll be a, a, a key theme in this 21st century. I would argue a more important one might be the rise of India You'll certainly write about biotechnology and how that swelling wave affects us all. But I think ultimately what this 21st century will be known for is the rise of women. The 21st century, the story of the 21st century will be that in this century, finally, we reach critical mass where women who today sit, uh, not at their own desire, but on the sidelines in so many societies, it's an enormous miss for global society. And, you know, the global economy is $85 trillion. Um, Arguably, there are $30 trillion in untapped human resources parked on the sideline. It's, it's better in some countries than in others. But I think the rise of women to many, many significant leadership positions, their full integration in the workforce. And we're still early days in the 21st century. But I think when I look at that accelerating trend by the end of this century, that will be the story of this century. Now, let's bring it back to Afghanistan. Therefore, Afghanistan, in my view, is one of these um, cutting edge societies where under the Taliban, Women had no education, were utterly disadvantaged, were effectively chattel of men. And as a result, Afghanistan was parked firmly in the 14th century in terms of its ability to produce and move forward. What has happened in Afghanistan, because of uh, 
U.S. engagement, NATO engagement, Western engagement, because of the work of, above all, the work of many, many Afghans, um, is nothing short of remarkable in terms of women and where they go. Today, as we record this podcast, we're right on the knife's edge of that ultimately either succeeding or falling apart. And so I think we have to keep faith with our Afghan allies. And above all, we have to ensure that the gains we've made in that particular zone uh, are not lost because it w- we would be enormously, back to the 21st century and what matters here, we'd be enormously on the wrong side of history if we allowed that to happen. I just wanted to get your thoughts, sir, and I really appreciate this. Um, the right and the wrong side of history, however we talk about that, but there are unique features to the American presence on the global stage. You talked about the rise of China, and there's some that posit they're more transactional in their interactions internationally. What is unique and value added about American leadership on the global stage, and why is it so necessary to a tomorrow? I'll tell you three things that, that strike me as crucial about American leadership. Um, one is our sense of values. And so here you've, we, we do stand for democracy, liberty, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, gender equality, racial equality. Look, we execute those values imperfectly, but they're the right values. So I think there's a value driven proposition to the United States. That is, I don't want to say completely indispensable, but there's no other single unitary center that stands for those values um, in a more of a scale sense than we do. Secondly, and this is completely different, our geography is incredibly powerful and important in the global system because we we connect the two vast world oceans. We have benign neighbors to the north and south. We have an incredibly rich resource uh, basket that sits in the center of all this. And and therefore, we are a fundamental part of this global economy um, just by any sense of scale and size. And by the way, we're all concerned justifiably about China's rise and China's economy. Increasingly, I think it's unclear that China is going to overtake the United States economically because of demographics. China's demographics are flickering out. And so I think that our economic throw weight is just crucial. And then thirdly, and what do you expect from someone who spent 37 years in the military? I think our military capability, a force for good, our military apolitical, defends the Constitution of the United States, I think carries the right values forward, um, is a powerful deterrent force that prevents adventurism. And here a book I would point to that's a cautionary tale is by Robert Kagan, The Jungle Grows Back, which is a short, very readable treatment of what would happen if the United States started to withdraw from the international system. And let's face it, uh, with the Trump administration, you see some tendencies in that direction. I don't think that's permanent. Uh, I think that our Global engagement is part of the story of America that will go on in this 21st century and beyond. But if you started to withdraw and you took our value set off the table and you took us out of global trade and made us more of an 
insular trading market, much as we did in the 20s and 30s, which, by the way, cracked the global economy and led to the Great Depression. And if you took the U.S. military off the table and either said, "Yeah, we're going to shrink it or we're just not going to deploy it, uh, I think the international system would be in peril. And therefore, I, for one, will continue to advocate for a strong U.S. role in the world. And I'll close by saying I don't believe the United States should be a global policeman. We have not the capacity nor the inclination to do that. But we have a powerful, important leadership role in the world with our allies, partners, and friends that I think will go forward. And if we withdraw, I see stormy seas ahead. Well, Admiral, we're we're almost out of time. And Thank you so much for spending this with us. So we're going to now try, we're going to throw at you now the question that we ask all, we ask all of our guests one of two questions. Uh, we kind of flip a coin to see which one they're going to get. And we're, we're going to throw at you, what are we as a nation not talking enough about that we should be talking about? What's the other question? The other one, <laughs> no, hey, the other one well, sure, you can pick. The other one is, what does no one ask you that you wish they would? Um, I'm going to answer both of them, but I'll do it quickly. <laughs> we'll uh, take it. And I'm going to actually modify the second question slightly. Um, the first question I think is, I feel very strongly about, which is we are not talking enough about the lack of civility and the lack of optimism in our society. And here lies our greatest danger is the polarization we see on the left. It's MSNBC and Morning Joe and Rachel Maddow. And on the right, it's Fox and Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson, and I carry no brief for either side of that. What I believe is that we can have extreme differences in policy, but what we are approaching is a level of personal animosity that, that I'll use the word, that frightens me. And I think we have to find a way to move our politics back toward the center. But even more importantly, we have to find a way to move our sense of civility and what is okay to do back toward the center because it is drifting toward the extremes. That the person that disagrees with you might not be evil, they might just disagree. Correct. And um, we ought to be able to disagree without being disagreeable. And we are losing that capacity. And the things that will get us back together, I think, are um, a shared sense of challenges, um, a sense that service matters in our society, not just military service, but all the ways people can serve our society and education. I think those are the three elements that will help move us back toward the center. And as voters, we ought to be looking for candidates who want to move us back toward the center, who can reach across that aisle, who can energize education and service in ways that help bring us back together. We get a vote in this. The second question, um, what do I wish you would ask? Here's what I wish you'd ask me. I wish you'd ask me, you know, if you weren't an admiral, what would you be? What would you be? I would be a cook. Really? I love to cook. Um, I'm Greek American, very proudly so. And my grandfather came to this country and opened a, a diner. You know, not an elaborate restaurant like many Greek Americans. He came and opened the diner that you see in my big fat Greek wedding. I mean, yeah. that's based on my grandfather's life. Love I'm, I'm, I, ha I have now become the grandfather in that movie, by the <laughs> we way. We all do. I have my, my little spray bottle of uh, Windex. <laughs> and, um, 
And so as a boy, I grew up with a love of cooking and a love of restaurants. And I had been a busboy, a waiter, uh, a prep guy, a line guy. I can run a line in a small diner and I love to cook and I still do all the cooking in our house. And it's a great joy to me because at the end of the day, food is love. Families are love. Food and families and love go together. And that's probably a pretty good way to end the podcast. It is. Your, your wife is here with us and she is nodding <laughs> that, that this is, in fact, the truth. And so, Admiral, we're going to let you go so you can talk to our Stantu veteran leadership class. I think they, they're in for a treat because they, they've got a lot to learn from you. So we, we really appreciate the time. Thank you, Andrew. And thanks, everybody, for putting this wonderful dialogue together. Matthew, thank you for organizing this. Read about the gains women in Afghanistan have made with U.S. support since the fall of the Taliban at bushcenter.org slash Afghan freedoms. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about The Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.